Gordon McDonald, in his book, Building Below the Waterline, writes these words. Unresolved feelings do not flutter away in the wind. They deposit themselves in the strata of our souls and lie waiting to escape. They are all there. The resentments, the despair, the anxieties, the worries, the fears. When we're young, we have enough energy to keep them from geysering. But as the years accumulate, we lose our ability to push them underground. Last week, we talked about the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. And our main takeaway from the parable was that forgiveness breaks the power of anger. That genuine forgiveness at its core is unconditional. That regardless how the other person responds to us, we are going to take the $12 million of vertical forgiveness and grace that God has offered us in Jesus, and we're going to bend it horizontal to whatever sin debts others have accumulated against us. And we talked about how forgiveness requires one party and happens at a moment in time. But reconciliation and the rebuilding of trust requires two parties and occurs over the course of time. That you might not be able to rebuild and reconcile a relationship where the other party is unwilling to come to the table with some posture of humility and some willingness and hopefully some self-awareness to take ownership of the brokenness and the fallenness they've contributed to the mess that the relationship's in. If that's not able to occur, reconciliation and rebuilding of trust isn't possible when another person continues in a pattern of untrustworthy behavior but we can still forgive them. And that was the whole point of last week was the act of forgiveness just requires one party. And when we think deeply about this, when we are harboring unresolved forgiveness issues towards another person, when we are harboring what we called resentment, which is frozen anger, when anger gets laid in the heart and sits there long enough and becomes frozen over, eventually it manifests into you become the kind of person that we described as an angry person. That's one way you can go with unresolved issues that linger in this life. Because there will be no lack of obstructions to our will in this life. Just keep living. And you'll have plenty of reasons, you have plenty of things that run against the grain of our lives, and here's the deal. When we hold that against another, is the other party the more deeply affected one? Generally speaking, not. Generally speaking, the other party is continuing to live on as if things, whatever in their view of it, it's us, it's we are the ones that are most harmed. Like Frederick Buechner said years ago, the skeleton at the feast is you. You're feasting on yourself as you continue to live in that pattern of unresolved hurt, anger, sin. So forgiveness happens in a moment, but the rebuilding of trust over time. So we were working on this exercise all week long. Ephesians 4.32, right? We said we're memorizing that. So I thought we'd just say it all together. And no, it's not gonna be up here on the screen because we've all memorized it, right? Ephesians 4.32 says what? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave, right? So the picture is, 
We take this forgiveness and mercy and grace and we extend kindness and compassion towards others based upon vertical, bended, horizontal. And we said, all week long, we're working this muscle. We're gonna keep Ephesians 4.32 in front of the, kind of the forefront of our mind in all our relational worlds. Anybody find that really helpful this week? Was it a help? Anybody have one of those situations where like, man, I'm so glad Ephesians 4.32 was guiding that discussion. I had a, I had a mom stop me after service last week and she said, Eric, what, what do we do with this forgiveness and anger issue if the person that's becoming clear to her that she needs to forgive is herself? Boy, isn't that a great question? I hadn't even thought through that aspect of this discussion, so I spent some time thinking and praying on it this week because I thought about how often we're hardest on ourselves, are we not? That we think about the times in our lives where we let God down, and we know it, where we let people we love down, and we know it, where we let some coworkers down or some teammates down, and, and we live with this kind of lingering guilt, shame, and regret where our intentions were this, but our actual actions were this, and that gap can just kind of devour us, and we can just live under this weight of, man, what if, and how come I can't just rise up? I need to forgive myself. So two thoughts on this. The first one is, I think we gotta make sure we work through the journey of kind of laying whatever the, whatever the offense you're holding against yourself, whatever the issue is, you need to open that up before God and make sure we're praying through. It's called confession. We gotta make sure we're working through the confession issue before the Lord first. That's a between you and God thing to say, hey, you know what, Lord, I just need to peel back some layers on this on the things that I'm holding against myself, Psalm 51, Psalm 32 would be two good guides for you in that. And just to kind of pray through whatever the lingering issue you're holding against yourself is in a spirit of confession. And then secondly, we need to move from that place, we need to move from a base of grace, not condemnation. We learn and grow from grace, not condemnation over it. What's Romans 8, 1 say? Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I thought, well, the one party who has justifiable re- means to condemn us for our failures, he says, here's what he's gonna do. He says, I'm going to extend grace to you. I'm gonna release your debt in grace. So the journey for us in forgiving ourselves is learning to see ourselves as God sees us in Jesus. That's really, really important. Like when we look in the mirror, and we know our own failings, perhaps better than anyone. We know where we're falling short. Do we see what God sees? Because he sees us in Jesus. He sees us redeemed, restored, renewed. He sees us whole by his blood. He sees us as a new creation in Christ. Do we see those things? And I think the journey of kind of releasing ourselves from the cycle of guilt, shame, and regret is Lay it before the Lord in confession. Make sure we don't skip that step. And then secondly, rise up from a base of grace, not condemnation. Don't let the enemy get a foothold in just condemning us and beating us down on the issue, but to rise up from grace and say, I wanna see myself as you see me in Jesus. And so what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna build off of where we left off last week because here's the reality. Just because you go Jesus' way and the journey of forgiveness way, because that's the alternative to becoming an angry person. You can take up the yoke of Jesus, and you can become a person of forgiveness. But just because you go that way doesn't exempt you 
from conflict-related relationships. Anybody found that to be true? I'm going the way of Jesus, I'm choosing the posture of forgiveness, but I'm finding myself in relational contact that I've got to still work through conflict-related stuff. You're not exempt from that. You can't just say, oh, I just forgive them and I'm moving on. There are times in which you're going to have to sit down and have the things that we as humans really least like to have. There's very rarely a person in a work environment, in a family situation, in a church who says, I just love it when I get to sit in conflict resolution meetings. That person's strange. There's just like something weird about that. It's not something we enjoy doing, but here's what Jesus knew. I don't know if you noticed in your Bibles in Matthew 18, the NIV. Look at the header of the section just before the parable of the unmerciful servant. What does it say? The NIV says, a brother who sins against you. How ironic is this? Jesus sets forth a four-step conflict resolution strategy before he tells the parable of the unmerciful servant. You know what that tells me? It tells me Jesus says, hey, Simpson, if you have a pulse, you are going to be in relational dynamics where there will be an obstruction to your will. Your preferences, your plans will not be always cooperated with. And there will be kind of a running against the grain that's gonna go on, which is going to warrant the right posture beginning from a base of grace and forgiveness, but eventually you're gonna to have to have some, you're gonna have to have some difficult conversations. You're gonna to have to have some heart-to-hearts. You have to work through things. And I love how practical Jesus is. He just says, here's practically how you do that. When you hit those tough relational points, at work, at home, in a church, at a sports team, in a drama club, when you hit these things, what do you do? Because if, if you look at kind of the relational worlds of your life and you go, you know what, I really don't deal with conflict. The first thing you ask yourself is you might wanna ask the people around you because I bet they have a different take on that. That would be one thing. And secondly, perhaps Anne Lamott's words might, we might wanna heed what she says. I put that in your notes. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. You might just wanna live with that one a little bit if you think, ah, I don't really have much conflict. No, the reality is if you've got breath of life, living in a fallen world with a sinful nature, trying to do anything together collectively, you are going to have to work through, and Jesus knows this, conflict. So today, four-step conflict resolution strategy. Think of this as dealing with conflict Jesus' way, that I would like to term a healthy way. So the title this morning is Learning to Live with Conflict. Boy, isn't that a good thing? Jesus says, hey, take up my yoke. I'll teach you how to live with conflict in a healthy way. He says, verse 15, Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So step one is, what's step one in Jesus' conflict resolution strategy? What's he tell us to do? You go one-on-one. You go one-on-one to the person you're in conflict with. What does he say? If your brother sins against you, what does it say? Go and show him his fault. Who's supposed to initiate? Who's supposed to initiate? the person who's been offended or hurt or sinned against. Why? 
Because often the other party is living mostly in kind of oblivion on the issue. Not always, but for the most part, the other person has no idea the depth of hurt or whatever's gone on on the other side of the equation. So the one who's been offended or sinned against has to take the initiative. And because we've been together for so many years, this has happened dozens of times with me, with all of you. You've been very good about this, modeling it at different points. I will have said something in a message that I absolutely didn't intend for it to be received in the way that you received it. And some of you have scheduled a Matthew 18 meeting with me and say, hey, Pastor Eric, help me understand this. And you did it with grace and humility. And you know what? Within 10 minutes, the whole issue was resolved. And we prayed together and we moved on in grace. Isn't that a whole lot better way than carrying this around and going, yeah, what was Eric said this and I'm carrying this barb around. I don't get this. And I remember it was like... Uh, I don't know, five or six years ago, we were doing a marriage series. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, marriage series. And it was actually around this topic. We were talking about conflict, and I think I was trying to work on what do we do in marriages when we hit conflict. And I decided I was gonna use a phrase in that conflict talk. And I said something to this effect. I said, you know, mom and dad, husbands and wives, when, when you're kind of bumping and grinding against each other, when you're kind of like, you know, like, I meant it like, you know, when you're bumping and grinding and you're in conflict with each other. And and I noticed there was a group of like 20-something newly marrieds right over here. And they were like elbowing each other during most of the message. I kept saying it all through the message, but it wasn't like a one and done thing. I kept saying, I said, you know, when you're bumping and grinding against each other, it's all this conflict. And they just kept, I thought, wow, they're really attentive today. I thought, wow, they're really paying attention. I mean, they're really applying the message. This This section over here is on it. Well, the service is over, and one of them kindly came up to me and said, hey, um, I think there's a little breakdown in communication this morning. Oh, yeah? So, yeah, you know, like, the phrase bumping and grinding in a marriage context? Not quite conflict stuff. (laughs) But they said it's a really good conflict resolution strategy. And if some of you are sitting there saying, I have no idea what he's talking about, let me just leave it at this. All you got to do is ask any of the 20-something marrieds around here. They'll fill you in on what I mean by this. But the whole point was, whether it's a misstep in a message, right? I've had plenty of those through the years. Whether it's a disappointment at a family crisis where I, I wasn't able to, as a pastor, respond as, a, as timely as this person wants to meet or connect or whether it's a decision that was made that some are really struggling with. There's no lack of things when you're doing life and community in a family like this together where we need to say, hey, you know what? I'm not quite sure I understand all this. I'm not quite sure I'm on board with all this, but here's what I'm gonna do. I'm not, here's what I'm not gonna do. I'm not gonna get my life group together and we're gonna have a prayer request about this. That's not what you do. You don't get your life group to say, hey, I want you to pray about this. I need to have a Matthew 18 with so-and-so. No. You don't go down the office hallways and announce to all your coworkers how you're having trouble with so-and-so and you need to have a meeting with them. That's not, you don't have the water cooler conversation. You don't send the email or the text message, oh, heavens, please help with this, right? Email and text is not a good forum to apply step one. Going one-on-one is not through your electronic device. You with me? Now, you might arrange the meeting that way, that's fine, but... Gang, that's part of the breakdown that happens often. All the things we read into those subtle little electronic communiques where there's massive misunderstanding when the much wiser step is what? What is Jesus asking us to do? Oh, he's shocker. He's saying, you mean I need to sit across the table face to face with the person? Yes. 
That's what you need to do. Look each other in the eye. Notice it's brothers and sisters in Christ. It's in the family of God. You look your brother or sister of Christ in the eye and you say, under this posture, help me understand. That's a great phrase, by the way, to use at step one. Help me understand, and then you finish when this occurred or when you said this. Help me understand why. Help me understand how this all happened. If you use that help me understand, it's a lot less of a defensive posture than you this and you that. So a couple preparations on step one are, I found it really helpful to write out my thoughts prior to a Matthew 18 step one meeting. Why does writing help? Writing help brings an exactness. It helps kind of center down on what are the main issues and then categorize some things. Put some things in categories that are centering on, here's the core of the conflict or the offense or the hurt. Put some categories on it and hear this. And some very specific examples to help you help the other person understand how you've arrived at this conclusion. It's not enough, those of you in a work environment, it's not enough just to go to your supervisor and say, I don't feel a valued member of the team around here and have no specific examples for the supervisor to do anything with that. You gotta say, here's, here's why I've concluded I don't feel a very valued member of the team. I've got, when we did this, when we did this, when you did this, or whatever. You have specific things that reinforce each thing you put on your category. And then lastly on step one, think about this. How would you prefer to be approached in that kind of a conversation? Apply that filter in you approaching them. You would prefer it if someone really prayed it through and didn't just emotionally react. Please do that. How much do you value that when you know the person who's sitting in front of you has obviously prayed it through? has obviously kind of worked through the emotional stuff of it and got to the core of the issues, has thought about God's perspective on this, has done the hard work of writing some things out, been very specific, and it comes with a posture of, hey, help me understand. Do you know 95% of the conflict resolution issues are resolved? Step one, that's my experience. Think about the kind of family units we'd have if we applied Jesus' words at step one. Think about our work environment. Can you imagine your office environment if everybody just lived Matthew 18 in conflict? Wouldn't that be something? Think about our community as a church, a family, a church family together, that we just had a culture of this. We say, hey, this is how we're gonna approach it when there are these issues. And then there's some times in which we gotta go to step two. What does Jesus say? If you work on that, you have the one-on-one meeting and you don't get it resolved, what does he say to do? Step two, verse 16. But if he will not listen... Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy 19. You can read the context on your own if you'd like, but the basic parameter of the quotation is Jesus is quoting from God's, he set up some parameters around how people were gonna be convicted and sentenced as criminals. And he said it's not enough for one person to come and accuse another person. You have to have a group. You have to have at least two or three. And here's the interesting thing and. You can read more about, but the way that God had the accusers participate in the punishment of those who were convicted. So let's say there was a person who committed a crime. You were a part of either witnessing the crime or being a part of it somehow. You stood as a witness to this person. They were convicted. The punishment was death by stoning. Death by stoning in a Jewish tradition, they would elevate, they would take the person who was gonna be stoned to a a platform 10 to 12 feet high They'd have a bay of jagged rocks below, and at the platform, they would ask the witnesses, the accusers, to go up on the platform and push them off. Why? 
it sifted, did it not? It sifted if someone was kind of on the fence, true accusation versus false accusation. You're going to be all in, most likely, if you're going to push someone to their death. That was the whole point. Now, I'm not suggesting this at step two. Just follow me here. Stay with me. My point is, there are times where the two people in conflict with each other need some help. Jesus knows this. And you look for a trusted, mutually trusted friend, third party. Key here is that both parties value the person selected. Are you with me? You've got to select someone that both parties would look at and say, that would be helpful to have them present. What is the role of the third party? The role of the third party is not to be a counselor. That's not their role. The role of the third party is to help the two people in conflict hear, process, and exchange information in a way that they can maybe better understand. It's an objective view. It's like, hey, Joe, I'm hearing you say this, but Phil is receiving it like this. Let's, here's what I'm hearing, and they kind of help back and forth and kind of work through, and this is a mutually trusted friend. And then my experience is if 95% are resolved at step one, 97% are resolved at step two. 97 out of 100 times resolved right there. Again, with the right posture. We're already assuming last week's message. So if you missed last week, go back, work through last week's message because here's the base this whole thing works from. You've chosen to go the way of forgiveness in the yoke of Jesus. That's the baseline. If you don't go that way, do you see how conflict resolution, do you see how there's really little shot for it to be fruitful at all? If you haven't already started from the base of forgiveness and grace, if you come into a conflict resolution meeting, both guns blazing, heart fueled up with anger and bitterness and resentment, how do you think that's gonna go? Not well. So do you see how these gotta go together? That you work through the base, kind of the interior structure work, you Holy Spirit, conversations with Jesus, get to that place of forgiveness and extending, bending it towards the other person, and then there's going to be a great platform from which you can enter in step one. And when that doesn't work, you go step two, take a mutually trusted friend. But how about this? Jesus says, hey, there's some times you gotta go to step three. What is step three? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, does that mean we just parade folks up here and say, hey, meet Joe and Phil, They can't get along. And everybody goes, boo, hiss, shame on you. That's not. Here's the whole point of this. Jesus recognized that there is a role of spiritual authority in conflict resolution. So here's tell it to the church. Here's the application of that for our lives. You involve a leader in your local church. You go to an elder. You go to a pastor. You go to your life group leader. And you go with a sense of, hey, they have some spiritual authority, spiritual leadership, spiritual counsel. Here's what this meeting will look like. It'll be Phil and Joe who are in conflict. It'll be the trusted friend who is a third party who participated at step two. And it'll be the spiritual leader from the church. It'll be at least four people in the room, most often. My experience is 99% of them are resolved right there. So, 95% of the time, step one, just go to the person, posture of humility and teachability and help me understand and work through it. If that doesn't work 97% of the time, I think if you take someone, trusted third party, and if that doesn't work, if you involve somebody in a spiritual leadership, spiritual mentor type role, their role is a little bit more of a counselor and a guide in the discussion, but still the goal is to help Joe and Phil come to a point of reconciliation. That's step three. 
And then step four, Jesus gives us the last step of the equation is what? And if he refuses to listen even to the church, what do you get to do now? Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. What does that mean? That means you're gonna distance yourself from a relationship. I think it's pretty rare, but it happens. Here's what Jesus knows. Living in a fallen world with a sinful nature, the depth of brokenness, it takes two people to actually get to the point of a reconciled position. Do you know sometimes the other party is unwilling to reconcile? And some of you are holding yourself hostage in a situation where the other person isn't at the place of actually being able to rebuild a a relationship of trust. You actually need to distance yourself from the relationship until what? Here's the posture you maintain though. Lord, if the person ever gets to the place where they're willing to have a conversation with the spirit of humility and have, that you'd be willing. That's what the Lord wants to know. Would you be willing? If he did something amazing at the, on the other side of the table? Yes, that's the posture of a follower of Jesus. We'd be willing. But there are some times, and I don't understand everything that happened in Acts 15, but Barnabas and Saul had to separate. They had to part ways because they were arguing over whether John Mark should join them or not. And they... Sometimes that happens. Now, I don't know that they work through all the steps, but my point is this. In a work environment for some of you, by the way, in a work environment, where do you involve your supervisor in Jesus's steps? Where do you get the supervisor involved? Step three. So I'm gonna help all you supervisors in a work environment here. You don't involve the supervisor at step one. You don't just run to your supervisor and say, hey, I got this issue with Joe in the, in the mail room here. We gotta work... You need to be talking to Joe first. And then you don't run to your supervisor if you haven't already tried to involve another coworker or someone who can help you. You involve the supervisor at step three when you go there with the trusted coworker, friend, third party, and you try to work through it together. But sometimes, gang, you do all those steps in a work environment and you get to the point, here's what you're gonna have to conclude. You might have to go find another job. You, you might you just say, hey, I can't continue to place myself in this work environment under these circumstances because I've worked through the steps. It's clear to me the decisions that are being made are gonna continue to be made. Therefore, you're left before God. You're clean in God's eyes to leave. Now listen, you don't leave with a wake of disunity and fracturing relationships and gossip and slander. You don't do that. That's not the wake you leave. You just leave with humility and grace and let God get the last word in the whole thing. He's much better at it anyway. Just Let him be the defender in it. And so sometimes in a work context, that means you gotta go find another job. Sometimes in a church context, it means you need to go find another church. I think it's pretty rare, but it happens. Sometimes you get to the point where you just can't see eye to eye on some of the core issues and you work through step one, two, three. I think 99 out of 100 times, it's resolved. But that one out of 100, I think Jesus has given us a window. You just say, hey, gotta distance yourself from the relationship, need to separate until some other dynamics change. And you can do that under a ban. Here's the thing. You can still forgive them. You can still forgive them. We're not off the hook on that issue. Because remember, forgiveness requires how many people? One party. But you're probably not going to be able to reconcile. That's a two-party issue. I think if we keep those two clear, it might help us navigate, especially those of us with some deep layers of relational brokenness in our past, and you look at it and go, that is a mountain That is a mountain of stuff to work through. And in this life, gang, it may not all get worked through. But it doesn't mean you can't forgive them. Because the skeleton at the feast is you and it's me if we continue to hold it.
I'll close with Peterson's quote and then how we're gonna put it into practice this week. End of your notes here, Peterson says this. I will not try to run my own life or the lives of others. That's a really important phrase as we enter into conflict. That's God's business. I will not pretend to invent the meaning of the universe. I will accept what God has shown its meaning to be. I will not noisily strut about demanding that I be treated as the center of my family or my neighborhood or my work, but seek to discover where I fit and do what I am good at. The soul, clamorously crying out for attention and arrogantly parading its importance, is calmed and quieted so that it can be itself truly. So all through this Lenten season, we have been trying to work some muscles of practice in different exercises. Why? That's the purpose of Lent. Lent actually is you look at a renewal time. You look at what can you commit yourself to that, man, over the course of time, if you stayed with that for a period of 40 plus days, it could mean significant impact in your walk with God. That's what Lenten season's about. And so this week, here's why we're going to put this into practice. We're all going to memorize Ephesians 4.29. Let's say this verse together. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So we're going to memorize that, preferably today, earlier part of the week. Let's get it internalized, memorized. And then step two, we're going to commit to a seven-day complaining fast. No whining, no murmuring right now even. No whining, no murmuring, no grumbling, no funny faces from the blue chairs right now. Just seven-day complaining fast. Listen, here's what we're going to work. We're going to work Ephesians 4.29 muscle this way. If we can't say something wholesome, we're going to keep our mouth closed. For some of you, you are in such a toxic relational situation, it's gonna be a really quiet week. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Could be at home, could be at work, could be church-related, I don't know. Be really quiet. Yes, purposefully. If we can't, here's the filter. Is what I'm about to say wholesome? If it's not, it's not being said. And permission now, careful, we don't need to pile a whole bunch of Matthew 18 meetings on the backside of this exercise, but permission given to, uh, you know, wink at the other person when they're violating it. So here's what's going to happen this week, I think. Somebody's going to say, this really isn't complaining, but right there, I'm not trying to be negative, but no, off this week, not even going to say it. You with me? And if you pick up the little vibes of uh, complaining, murmuring, grumbling, you permission to kind of blow the whistle, throw the flag at yourself or at someone else, laugh about it, recommit yourself to the exercise and move on. You with me? Because this is gonna be a tough muscle to work, but I think it's really important to get to step three. Why are step one and two so important? Because we're supposed to get to step three. We need to be praying consistently for the person or persons that we're in this kind of relational turmoil with, whatever those circumstances are. Do you know to actually get to the point where you can pray consistently for them? There's often some, you gotta go, we gotta shut this down. So you can actually get to some things of the deeper work of the spirit in the heart and begin to pray consistently for the person and your relationship with them. And ask God to help you see what he sees and just work through that for seven days. 
And then at the end of the week, here's what I'd like you to do. So probably next Saturday would be good. Next Saturday, I want you to pause and kind of take some time and reflect on if anything's changed in how you're viewing the situation slash conflict slash issues. And then, if needed, commit yourself to schedule a Matthew 18 meeting. Okay, can we do that? Next seven days, we're all in. I can tell everybody's super excited about this one. (laughs) We're all in together, memorizing it, complaining fast, praying it through, pause, reflect, and then when needed, commit yourself to schedule the one-on-one meeting and get the process started. And man, just think about the ripple effect of just kind of wholeness in relational worlds that could happen if we just actually put into practice Jesus' really practical words of how to deal with conflict. By the way, this is one of the core items in our membership covenant as a church. So if you choose to become a member of Eagle Church, you know one of the things you check off on, one of the things you kind of sign off, is in our church family, we make a covenant together to deal with relational conflict in the Matthew 18 way. This morning is what we mean by that. And we're not having this conversation this morning because there's some kind of big church drama thing going on. The whole point of these conversations is that before we ever get into those really difficult places, we've already decided on the front end how we're gonna go about it. Is that a much healthier way? I think it's just much healthier. It's really helpful as a family. If you hadn't had family meetings about this, if you've got children around the table that are old enough to process this kind of stuff, you know what? This would be really helpful to train up some children. on you. Hey, you know what? This is how you're gonna deal with it. So when you go off to college and you're, Having issues with your roommate. You're having issues with the locker room. You're having issues in the drama club. What are you gonna do? Train, teach, coach. And maybe use an exercise like we're doing this week. All right, let's pray. Lord, would you help us this week? There's so much on these layers. There's so many things that we know in our own hearts that we need a work of your spirit to humble us, to give us grace beyond ourselves, to give us patience and gentleness, Some of us need, I think a lot of us this week are gonna need the fruit of the spirit of self-control to sit as a door over our mouths. Would you give us that grace? Would you give us an awareness of our words? Would you train us in wholesome speech? And would you rebuild and restore things that are broken down? And I pray more glorious than they ever were before. Thank you that you never give up on us. Thank you for the $12 million of mercy and grace you've given us. And we worship you in Jesus' name, amen.